Q&A number four, answering all of your injury questions. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default, become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Welcome back, guys. Another episode, another Q&A episode. I think every month or so, I'll do um, a Q&A answering all of your injury questions. I'm trying to do Q&As every fortnight or so, but the injury-specific stuff, uh, for anyone who is supporting the podcast on Patreon or any of those who are currently attending my online course, they get the added benefit of uh, submitting their questions. And I think new injuries pop up every now and then and people do have different questions and they, they do arise here and there. So I think the, the injury specific stuff, I'll, um, it'll be a bit of a regular thing. And I am seeing, um, similar question or similar people submit questions and they're all always different. So people go through different experiences as the months go on. (laughs) Um, So uh, before we get started, I'm excited to announce that my new website has launched and it is runsmarter.online and it's all over my socials. Um, They're linked to my social media accounts and it houses all of my blogs, which I'm redoing at the moment. Um, It houses the podcast episodes and it also has uh, a link to Uh, describe what the online course actually is, uh, whether it's beneficial for you and just the whole structure around how to go about signing up. So if you're interested, it's runsmarter.online. It looks really, really cool. I'm really happy with how the the website turned out and the, um, how professional it looks. Yeah, I'm just super pumped. So uh, getting that out of the way, um, anything else we need to discuss before we get into the Q and A's? I think that is it. So um, today we're going to be talking around um, some tendinopathies, how long it would take to get better. We've got uh, questions on compression sleeves and also around big big toe strengthening and just strength of the foot and ankle in general. So uh, we'll go through that today. Um, So the first one comes in from Dave and he asks, uh, what is the injury length timeline for tendon-related injuries like plantar fasciitis and high hamstring tendinopathy. This is a tricky one to answer. It's kind of like how long is a piece of string, but it's, I'm glad that you asked this, Dave, because I get this question a lot and it's just based around a certain injury itself. 
uh, like say shin splints. How long does it take for shin splints to get better? And unfortunately, there isn't one answer, especially especially when it comes to like a tendinopathy. If I was to put a time frame on it, if it is treated really early, so if it's treated within the first week, I would say if you do all the right things, it should settle within two to three weeks. But how often does that happen? Uh, very, very rarely does someone catch it that early. It's not often that it's diagnosed that early, and it's not often that someone does all the right things uh, within that time frame. And I do see hundreds of runners, and this is usually the reality. This is what we see. So uh, let's just say someone overdoes their training or um, does an error in their training and they've started developing a tendinopathy. It might not be as um, the symptoms that it's producing initially might not fit a tendinopathy pattern. Um, and if it is, sometimes it's hard to find a right diagnosis. So what people do is they get pain, so they rest. They rest for a week or two. Uh, then they return and there's a flare up and they think they just need a bit more time off. Maybe you should ice it. Maybe you should um, Google a few things, see if I can settle it down. And then very quickly, it's two or three months have passed and this injury is becoming a bit more persistent. It's um, starting to become a little bit more debilitating. And that's when people want to start seeking treatment. Also noting, like usually in the first two months or so, people can still run with a tendinopathy and that's sort of permission to not seek treatment because they think, oh, it'll get better on its own. And then once it gets so severe that they can't run, they book in for treatment the next day. And that's uh, a very, very common timeline that I see. So mostly when people come in, they've been suffering for this uh, for three months or so and off the bat, it's um, not a, a very good um, setup to organize a really swift recovery. And so uh, it, can, it can be very tough. And when they do seek that first initial treatment two or three months down the track, you're praying that the therapist that you do go see is the right therapist for you. You want to find someone who is proficient with seeing these sort of injuries. You want to uh, find a therapist that you trust that is uh, really well-versed in seeing runners and knows the right thing to do straight off the bat. Sometimes uh, you might go to the wrong health therapist. You might go to the wrong GP, which gives you inaccurate advice, or um, maybe it's just a, a new health professional that's just seeing how it goes, starting with some little strengthening and doesn't have a really honed in uh, management plan. And maybe they just focus on some passive massage and see how you go, that kind of thing. And sometimes the first health professional people see are a massage therapist and trying to uh, weed out some tight muscles or alleviate some sort of pain that they're going through. So um, off the bat, it's it's a tricky one. <laughs> um, and that can quickly turn into three, four months and still no results. So having managed or having someone manage a long-term issue, the management straight away changes. If I was to see someone within the first week, management would be super simple. This is what the few things that we need to do. Once someone's three, four, five months down the track, the the management becomes completely different because we're starting at a different um starting point first we need to start addressing like 
any aggravating factors throughout the day, which wouldn't have been an issue in the first month. And often, you know, I often talk about this um, pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. And if you haven't, if you're not really familiar with that, um, I recommend you go back to season one, which I discuss this in detail. But essentially, the further down the management path you go, or the further into um, a tendinopathy, the further down the spiral people tend to go. And when I said that initially running was uh, not too much of an issue, now it is an issue. It means you're going further down that that downward spiral. So your pain is increasing, it's becoming more irritable and you're being able, you're tolerating less. So what was once okay for a 5k run, you're now running 1k and it's flaring up. So that usually stems into daily tasks of flaring up the tendon, either standing for too long, um, going for like a, a hike or going upstairs or going from sitting to standing, all these daily tasks that we need to do, driving to work, that kind of thing is starting to become irritated. So our management needs to focus around addressing these and then we need to work our way up the spiral with giving you some strengthening, giving you some exercises within your capacity to adapt and then build your way up from there. And the further down you are in that spiral, the harder it is to make gains. But the first, let's say it takes like two weeks to see some level of improvement. Once you do see that slight bit of improvement, it becomes easier and easier and easier from there. And so there's not one simple time frame, two to three weeks of good management initially. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. It's great. But um, when it's six, 12 months down the track, I like to give the advice that we're looking at a time frame of around about three to four months until you are significantly better. If it's a 12 month plus injury, I do like to say that. Uh, but in saying that you should see some sort of steady improvement month over month. So uh, that that's a really nice way of saying if you are two months into your injury and you're seeing no improvement, then we need to swap things up. We need to change your management in some way because we can't just continue with the same thing and expect a different outcome. So um, that's a, a good um, good advice for you. So I often see a lot of people go through, say, shockwave f- through several sessions and they're still not noticing any symptoms, uh, not noticing any improvements. So my advice is like after two, three, four sessions of shockwave, you should start seeing some improvements. If you're 60, 70% better, then you can continue through the five, six sessions. If you're doing 10 sessions of shockwave and seeing no improvement, then you need to consider other options. Same thing with your management plan. But when it comes to a chronic issue, uh, sometimes those gains over the, the three to four month recovery might be too gradual to comprehend and to really get a grasp of with day-to-day life. So that's when I like to really ask my clients to document their symptoms, document their symptoms in the morning, afternoon, night, and go through that list. Uh, That way we can have a four uh, four weeks down the track, we can have a look at week one, 
see where the pain levels are at, go down to week four, week six, week eight, see if they're starting to settle or if the capacity is starting to improve. So the symptoms might be the same, but at once you were running 2Ks, now you're running 6, 7Ks with the same irritability levels. That's a good sign in itself that the tendon's starting to tolerate more and more load. And then over time, the symptoms will start resolving because that tendon is getting stronger. In the past, say, three months, I've seen five or six chronic high hamstring tendinopathies and we straight away have to address the sitting. We have to address walking up hills, upstairs, any sort of compression, any sort of loading and trying to manage those loads as best we can, trying to improve loads in walking, improve loads in some sort of strength capacity and in uh, running and very, very important when it comes to that level of irritability and that far down the track that we write down symptoms. So um, very important that we do that. What I also tend to find with chronic high hamstring tendinopathies is sometimes sleeping can be a bit of an issue. And this is particularly tricky for someone who has had it for six plus months because they're already um, a bit anxious and a bit worried that it's not gonna get better. And then with poor quality of sleep, if their symptoms are aggravated or achy while sleeping, is this leading to a bit more distress, a little bit more increased cortisol, uh, increasing their level of emotional stress. And as we know from season one, any sort of uh, any sort of hidden dangers, any sort of loss of sleep, increased stress does hinder our ability to recover. And then we start facing uh, the psychological issues with chronic tendon issues and just chronic pain in general. And that management itself becomes extremely different. And if you're not totally familiar with that, and if you think this scenario sort of fits uh, what you're going through, I recommend going to the the pain season earlier in the podcast. And uh, there's uh, three episodes, I think, of addressing pain, and one of them being chronic pain for runners. So uh, go back to that, and we talk about the brain, we talk about the importance of the brain and treating the brain when it comes to chronic issues. So uh, very important that you go to that if you're not very familiar. Okay, Dave, hopefully that answers everything. Um, We're moving on to Tracy and she asks, so what are your thoughts on compressive or the compression sleeve, calf sleeve? Any benefits or negative consequences? Uh, Anything to do with recovery or is it psychological that we perceive any improvement? Um, So I'll start off the bat. Unfortunately, I haven't come across any evidence for compression sleeves. I I delve into a lot of literature, like several hours a week, and I haven't come across any regarding compression stockings or compression sleeves or anything like that. That's not to say it's not out there. It just hasn't come across to me uh, or I haven't discovered it. Um, if anyone does have any evidence on compression sleeves, I'd love to have a look at it. So feel free to send that across. Um, but I thought I would just jot down a few dot points on just my thoughts about it. Um, So first of all, there are a lot of different brands of compression sleeves and there are a lot of different styles, different like compression areas. Uh, They all kind of uh, sell like different points, whether it's increased recovery, increased performance, that kind of thing. Um, They try and 
differentiate themselves in some way, like their uh, their woven um, properties and where they they sort of hold the compression, that kind of thing. But doesn't really make a lot of sense to me as to why it would enhance performance. Um, they might say something different, but I also like to keep in mind that they want to sell. It's like an apparel thing. It's like a, a marketing thing. They're very highly marketed. So it's along the similar lines of shoes, orthotics, like therapy devices, uh, but with clothing and apparel, it isn't, I don't think it is as highly regulated as some of like a medical device, like an orthotic. Uh, so they might be able to get away with some of their claims and some of their advertising. Um, so try and be mindful of that. Try and um, have uh, just, I guess, have some awareness around the the marketing ploys that they do, they do try. Um, yeah, so I myself wear some leggings, like the compression leggings sometimes. I have the... Um, two times you, uh, leggings and I only wear them in winter and I only wear them because I want to keep my legs warm, <laughs> especially in mornings. I do get very cold and, uh, I don't really see much of a benefit in terms of performance. I think for perceived performance, if someone goes through their running stride, like as soon as their knee bends, it's going to stretch the fabric at the front of the knee. And what that fabric is going to do is want to have this elastic property to um, spring your leg back into a straight leg. Um, so it might feel like it's it's helping in some way, similar to when you stride forward and the stretch goes through your glutes. It's going to naturally want to pull back and pull your leg back to straight. And so it might help with that component of things, but it's going to be negligible. And I think just running with and without leggings, you're not really going to see much of a difference. That's just my thoughts, um, but it might have a different, it might help provide like a, a different sensation, a different proprioception because you have something really tight on your skin when you're running. So that might be a thing as well. But yes, I do wear leggings sometimes and they are only um, for like, yeah, keep me warm really. Uh, the other dot points that I did have was to um, around like circulation and recovery and that kind of thing. I find it very hard to believe that it would aid in recovery afterwards, because I think some of them do claim that it aids circulation. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not going to be tight enough, or it's not really going to have an effect just because it is tight on the skin to improve circulation. The like in most cases with circulation, you want to keep things above the level of your heart. Uh, so if you roll an ankle and it's starting to swell up, what they do recommend is compress it, which is debatable these days anyway, but you also need to put it above the level of your heart. And that what that does is drain. So the heart, which is a pump, uh, it's a bit harder to pump against gravity. And if you're just doing an active recovery and walking around um, and it's below the level of the heart, what happens is the muscles contract. And as the muscles contract in your calves, in your feet, in your legs, uh, it pushes and squeezes the blood back up to the uh, the heart and sort of that's how it circulates through your veins. Uh, so if you are looking at aiding recovery and circulation, it would be uh, one, what I do is actively walk, do a walk and that will help circulation. And I also do these upside down bicycles where I lie on my back on the ground um, and I sort of do this um, inverted, what they call it, the, the gymnasts call it, um, 
like an inverted kind of handstand sort of thing where my shoulders are on the ground and my legs are up in the air and my hands are underneath my hips just holding for support and I just do some uh, a bicycle kind of action with my legs in the air. Uh, that tends to help with, well, it makes me feel better. I don't know if there's any science for it, but it makes me feel better to help with circulation. And um, yeah, so that's that's my thoughts on compression sleeves and calf sleeves, that kind of thing. Uh, my mind is ready to change, be changed if someone wants to send me some data and um, start swaying my opinions elsewhere. <laughs> um, so yeah, open to that. All right, moving on to the last one. Um, what are your thoughts on foot and toe strength, specifically around the big toe strength uh, to improve ankle, calf, and knee weaknesses? Are there any specific toe exercises you're able to recommend to build a functional strength? Is uh, And in this area to assist reducing pain and injury. Okay, so... My thoughts, thanks for submitting your question. My thoughts are definitely consider strengthening the feet if you don't do it already. Uh, it will help improve your foot and calf and ankle strength and function, but I guess not necessarily the knee. Well, not directly the knee anyway, uh, but there are plenty of knee exercises out there if you're wanting to, to strengthen knees. Um, when it comes to reducing injury and reducing pain, it will depend on the the type of injury depend on the type of pain. So I won't delve into that too much, but what I will touch base on is like big toe strengthening exercises and foot strengthening exercises, that kind of thing. Um, so I do have a few favorites. Um, one as like a real baseline foundation coordination exercise, I like to do toe yoga and I suggest this all the time. It's all over my Instagram. <laughs> um, so you place your feet on the ground, preferably in bare feet, and while you're sitting, you try and bring your big toe and only your big toe up towards the ceiling and then back down. And then you try and keep your big toe on the ground while raising all other four toes in the air and then back down. And then what you're doing is for toe yoga, you're spending 30 seconds to a minute of just um, repeating those two movements, a so big toe up and then all the other four toes up, then big toe up, all the other four toes up. And what you're doing in this scenario is you're... Um, seeing first of all as an assessment purpose can you actually do it and if you can't do it then you're facing a little bit of like a coordination and you need to improve on coordination a little bit some people pick it up straight away others really really struggle um, and it's just the ability for your foot intrinsic muscles to start working so the little muscles within the feet you want that to you want them to engage you want them to um, have a good coordination in order to restore a lot of foot function so i like to do that in the early stages what I also like to do in the early stages is um, like a TheraBand, you bare feet, foot on the ground, uh, you get an elastic stretchy TheraBand, just put it underneath the big toe and you lift that TheraBand up towards the ceiling while keeping your big toe down on the ground so you're resisting the tension of that band and what that would do is activate your arch, activate the um, intrinsic muscles within the feet and you can hold that for say 10 seconds and repeat that 10 times uh, this I give to people who are really poor with their function and strength for most people especially runners they wouldn't necessarily need to do this step because it is a very very low level of intensity and a low level of function um, but we would quickly move on or even skip that uh, stage and go to just strength and function which is calf raises you can do double or single leg calf raises, which will strengthen the plantar fascia, will strengthen the calf. 
We can bias the plantar fascia if you want to put a towel or something underneath your toes to bring your toes up into extension while you do a calf raise because that will tighten up the plantar fascia and kind of bias that um, strengthening and improving that function. I also like to bias the intrinsic foot muscles. Like we can remove the towel and then do some double or single leg calf raises while gently activating the uh, muscles of the feet. So how I instruct that is if you're standing, uh, just try and imagine just uh, activating the toes. We're almost trying to curl the toes. We're not actually curling the toes, but we're just activating the pads underneath the toes and just maintaining that activation the entire time as you come up onto your toes and back down. And on your way back down, we want to wait just until the heel touches the ground, not putting all of your body weight through that heel, but just as the heel touches the ground, we come back up and keep that those toes activated the entire time. Um, you should start noticing some fatigue around the foot and also in the ankle, and that can help build up the intrinsics. There is some evidence around what they call doming, like if you were to stand and try and activate or raise the arch of your foot. Um, they call that doming, which I don't know, just on my clinical um, experience, I haven't really uh, prescribed that a lot, just based on preference, I, I think. But if you can do that um, in sitting and just raise the arch by activating the intrinsic foot muscles, you can progress to doing that by uh, doing it in standing, do it in single leg, do it um, while balancing on one leg. And that has been shown to improve muscle um, strength, yeah, foot muscle strength and the uh, cross-sectional area. So the muscles, the intrinsic muscles get bigger and it's been shown to be more effective than say toe scrunches where, uh, sorry, towel scrunches where you try and pick up a towel in between the toes and you're trying to um, scrunch the towel with your toes that does activate a lot of the foot intrinsic, but it also activates a lot of the, the bigger muscles around the, the ankle and around the lower leg. Um, so the doming exercise is a little bit more targeted to intrinsics and it's shown to be more effective in strengthening the intrinsic muscles. Uh, something a lot more functional, just walking around in bare feet. This is really easy to do. We wanna make sure that if your feet are quite weak, that we don't uh, overdo things because it is quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of high demand through the the intrinsics and the plantar fascia if you aren't used to walking in bare feet and then all of a sudden you do. I see it a lot with people when it gets into summer and they've spent a lot of time in shoes and then as soon as summer comes, they're walking around in bare feet and they're walking around in thongs or um, jandals, whatever you want to call them, flip flops, and uh, then they come in with sore feet or plantar fasciitis or something walking on the beach barefoot walking on the beach is enormous um, demand through the feet muscles so make sure that you're well within your capacity and then you build up from there but walking barefoot can be fantastic then if we want to progress further and you're really strong with walking on bare feet you might want to try jumping skipping hopping all that kind of stuff in bare feet and with the right guidance make sure the dosages are fine and that you're building up from there um, so that would be my advice. So all the way from toe yoga, building all the way up to single leg hopping, even jogging a little bit um, in bare feet can be very beneficial, but make sure we don't uh, jump the gun and get too carried away and overdo things. Uh, it's good that you submitted this question. Um, who did? Tracy, th thanks for submitting this question. The 
the issues, well, you're in luck because I just finished um, my online module on foot strengthening and performance and asked uh, Tim Branston to uh, write his own five take-home messages for foot strength and function in running. And I have recorded that for the online course and he did jot down five key points. And so I thought I'd share it on this podcast today. <laughs> um, the Well, first of all, Tim Branston was in, I think, episode five of my strength strength training uh, season. And so he was talking about all the the good things to do with foot strengthening, foot function. So if you want to go back to his episode, he's very renowned. He loves talking about this sort of stuff and he says it in a better way that I can. So if you want to go back to that episode, that would be gold for you. Um, but yeah, he's uh, been generous enough to write down his five key tips. And if you want to learn more about him, he has um, Wollongong Podiatry and he also has The Running Lab, those two websites. If you want to go to um, he look at his stuff, he has... Um, a foot strengthening course that he likes to take as well. Um, Strong Feet is the name if you want to look into that as well. So um, point number one, he says, invest in training stronger, more robust feet to reap the rewards of increasing running performance and reducing injury risk. So we want to really highly prioritize strengthening the feet. Number two, you don't build strong feet while you run. You earn them in the 23 in the other 23 hours each day. Each step you take during the day is an opportunity to build stronger, more robust feet. Uh, so an example would be like when I go for a run, um, yes, we can strengthen our feet that way, but we can also benefit from building up stronger feet uh, throughout all the other times of the day. So if I'm at work, if I'm walking around the house, if I go for, if I walk the dog, that kind of thing, um, we can use that as an opportunity to strengthen the feet. So minimalist footwear, um, barefoot walking, uh, doing some intrinsic foot muscle exercises, all that kind of stuff helps uh, gain more opportunity to, to build stronger feet. Number three, running one repetition at a time. If you were doing a deadlift or a squat in the gym, you want to focus on quality reps each and every set. You want to focus on um, highly uh, a high quality rep every single time and he teaches running as repetitions so each step during your run is a repetition next time you run accumulate as many smooth strong running repetitions as you can and no sloppy reps number four magic shoes rather than trying to find the magic shoe that to increase your uh running performance try and aim to put powerful strong string uh springy feet into your shoe of choice and number five how to build powerful feet for running train your balance then you train your strength then you train your spring uh, all without shoes on do your regular gym workouts without shoes on and that's his five tips so uh, amazing takeaway an amazing way to sum up this episode so I hope you uh, took a lot away from it and I'm looking forward to doing this in a month or so to see if there's any other questions that come up. Um, thanks to the Patreons who pay five bucks a month to help support the podcast and also have the added benefit of um, throwing in their questions every now and then and asking their questions to expert guests that are on. Um, thanks to those who are attending the Run Smarter course and uh, can submit their questions also. Um, yeah, so I'm glad we have this community and I'm glad that I can answer all your questions and try and provide some clarity for you. 
So thanks for listening. I know I've said this in the last couple of episodes, but if you haven't already, go back to season one. I do know I'm starting to chat with a lot of people who are listeners and they're saying that they're going back to episode one listening through. It's fantastic. You're going to get a lot more benefit um, listening to the podcast once you've listened to the first 10, 15, 20 or so. So well done to everyone for doing that. If you haven't already, please do so. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll finish up there. Oh, before I go, I do have a new uh, podcast outro. <laughs> so um, if you are one like me that just skips uh, or stops the podcast as soon as this bit finishes, just have a listen to the new outro and let me know what you think. Okay, bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Run Smarter Podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content has on your future running. If you appreciate the mission this podcast is creating, it would mean a lot to me if you submit a rating and review. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and get instant notifications when a new episode comes out. If you want to learn quicker, then join our Facebook group by searching the podcast title. If you want to take your learning to the next step, including injury prevention principles, injury-specific insights, and modules to boost your running performance, then head to our website by searching runsmarter.online and jump into our Run Smarter Online course. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter Scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.